Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, an extended look at the brutal treatment of Iran's political prisoners and the devastating impact of crippling U.S.-led international sanctions on the country. And private prisons making a killing in Louisiana thanks to racist U.S. immigration policies and the expanding privatization of America's prison industrial complex. We will rebroadcast last night's devastating, very moving segment from the uh, Louisiana prison where so many uh, migrants are suffering, being brutalized, and then being deported. It's a terrible situation. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoint. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. And that is KPFA in the Bay Area. Today, it's uh, heroism for our time. There's a, a planned uh Afternoon of Solidarity with Iran's Political Prisoners. That's the name of a very timely online program co-sponsored by the social forum uh, of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco and the International Emergency Campaign to Free Iran's Political Prisoners Now. Um, and uh, this is going to be an event, a very important event, taking place on Sunday uh, at 1 p.m. We're going to hear more about that later, but... Um, so tonight on Flashpoints, we're going to be talking to one of the speakers at the event. Uh, this is a longtime friend of uh, Flashpoints, Larry Everest. Larry is a spokesperson for the International Emergency Campaign, a journalist and a contributor to Revolution, Revcom.us, who reported from Iran in 1979 and 1980. He is the author of Oil, Power, and Empire, Iraq, and the U.S. Global Agenda. Uh, Larry Everest. It is good to have you back. Welcome. Hey, great to be with you, Dennis. Well, um, we we are glad to have you with us. We are not happy about the ongoing situation for uh, political prisoners in Iran and the whole situation in terms of the kind of global situation and the power that the U.S. is wielding economically uh, to turn the screws and uh, keep the suffering high uh, against the Iranian people. So there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, it's been in the news uh around nuclear negotiations with the U.S., Iran has, and speculation about the potential for uh, military conflict, but not so much about the struggles of the protesters, of the dissidents, of the political prisoners. So what's been going on uh, on this front, and, and why uh, are you having this program now? Well, Dennis, um, our campaign, the Emer International Emergency Campaign, is demanding freedom for Iran's political prisoners and no U.S. war, no U.S. sanctions, no U.S. intervention. And we're holding this program now to kick off the year and step up our campaign, which I'll talk about in a few moments, because, as you say, not nearly enough people 
in this country understand the situation, know about not just the plight of the political prisoners, but the incredible heroism that they are showing, heroism for our times, heroism of the sort we need in this country and around the world. Um, In terms of the prisoners, to begin there, the Islamic Republic of Iran the, the Shah was overthrown by a very wide coalition of, of, of Iranians. I was there shortly after that revolution. And the Islamic Republic has been a repressive, oppressive Islamic theocracy from day one. When I was there in the summer of 79, uh, it's the only protest I've ever, and I've taken part in a lot of protests where people were killed on the street. Uh, I remember having Having to grab my friend's hand because he'd been hit in the head with a dirt with a rock or a dirt clod and drag him so we could um, you know at least try to escape harm's way but despite that kind of repression and this was a protest for press freedom Dennis it was a protest against the closing down of Iandagon uh, newspaper And this has continued for decades, but in recent decades, there's been a very important wave of mass, massive struggle, uprisings, protests across Iran in 2017. Again, in 2019, very powerfully, tens if not hundreds of thousands or more Iranians rising up for water, for food, for a living wage, for the rights of women for their basic uh, rights to speak out and express themselves and so on. And um, this has continued this summer in uh, Huzestan in the south of Iran. Recently in Isfahan, there were something like 450 protests in, in November alone. And this has been met with bullets, batons, tear gas, and a massive wave of arrest and repression against who? Against filmmakers, against artists, against intellectuals, against revolutionaries, against protesters, against labor, women, and human rights activists, against religious people of religious minorities like the Baha'i or ethnic minorities like the Kurds and the um uh, Baluch people. And the lives of these political prisoners really hangs in the balance. Just in the last couple of weeks, uh, Haider Gorbani, a Kurdish uh, political prisoner was executed. The well-known poet Bakhtash Abtin, who was thrown behind bars for advocating against state censorship, got COVID. There's very little protection at all for the prisoners in prison. He's in a medically induced coma. It's a terrible situation with his life in peril. And people should understand that the judicial uh, process in under the Islamic Republic is no more just than the Inquisition. Uh, people are often don't even know the charges against them for weeks, if not longer. They have no access till the very last, till the, as you step in the courtroom, uh, that's the only time you can have access often to any kind of legal help. People are put under torture, solitary confinement. Uh, one of the people speaking with me, Mark McLaren, her um, uh, 
mother was interrogated 80 different times for a total of a thousand hours and it's really uh evidence first uh rather verdict first verdict determined by the by the interrogators evidence later so this is a totally unjust uh situation and um the lives of these prisoners hang in the balance. And even so, uh, the courage that they've shown is just extraordinary. Nargis Mohammadi, for example, is a well-known human rights fighter and journalist. And she, when she was in prison for five and a half years, she protested there. She knew she could be rearrested. Yet she did it anyway. When she was released, she peacefully protested for the victims of the 2019 uprising, thrown back in jail, and she's still speaking out and fighting. So this isn't just a fight uh, against injustice. This is a fight for the future of Iran and the future of Iran, the Iranian people, and a, and a fight to support um, people who, who – this isn't some – U.S.-sponsored regime change, orange revolution kind of a thing. These are people fighting for a better future for Iran and really for the world. And they uh, they deserve our support. And this is why we're doing this program, to really... All right, let, let me people... just jump in here, Larry, for a, yeah. for a second. I want to let people know that you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Larry Everest. Uh, Larry is a spokesperson for the International Emergency Campaign, a journalist and a contributor to Revolution, Revcom.us. We are, again, talking about a panel that is coming up, and I, I want to first let people know that we're going to open the phones. It's an incredibly important subject. We haven't done near enough here on Flashpoints. We're going to open up the phones in a couple of minutes at 1-800-925-9008. 1-800-925-9008. You can call. Uh, well, it's, oh, it's 958-9008. 958 uh, let me say that again, 1-800-958-9008. Um, okay, so Larry, uh, just to reset here, basic description of the panel and just a, a one-liner on the other people who will be with you uh, over the weekend. Absolutely. This is going to be broadcast on Zoom and on YouTube you can go to our website, freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org. It's long, but it makes sense. freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org. And I'm going to be joined by Miriam Claren, whose mother, Nahid Tagavi, is a political prisoner right now, by Laden Bazargan, who is uh, a former political prisoner whose brother was murdered in the 1980s. 88 massacre of 5,000 political prisoners in Iran. And guess who was one of the people that was overseeing this? The current president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi. And also Dr. Azam Nimran Rod, who's a longtime uh, human rights uh, advocate and fighter. 
So that's going okay. to be the program, and there are going to be solidarity statements, and people can ask questions in the chat discussion and so on. Okay, and for the discussion now, if you want to join us, if you have a question for Larry, he knows a lot about this. 1-800-958-9008. It's an incredibly important uh, global uh, human rights focus, uh, and um, not nearly enough has been said. We haven't done nearly enough, but I wanted to seize the moment because this uh, event is coming up. The number here uh, to enter this dialogue is 1-800-958. And Larry, while we're waiting to take the first call, what what are the, give us a a rundown, brief rundown on the uh, impact of the sanctions. Well, the impact of sanctions has has been uh, really painful to the people of of Iran. That's why one of our, our demands has been to lift that. Uh, one of the main ways that it's had a terrible impact is preventing Iran from uh, importing many needed medicines. And as was the case in Iraq, uh, when they did the sanctions, they claimed to have a humanitarian exemption for things like medicine, but they end up banning a lot of needed chemicals and drugs and so on, claiming that they pose some sort of a danger or potential military use. And and, there have been many people that have suffered because they couldn't get uh, cancer treatment because, of course, that involves radiation and other medical care. And, of course, this is in the midst of a COVID pandemic. Uh, Now, there's also been the, the regime has also initially taken a very reactionary stance and and banned uh, uh, vaccines from outside of Iran, which that, so that didn't help either. Um, and one of the things that um, I wanted to let people know that uh, our campaign is really aimed at, we're serious about creating the kind of global outcry that actually can lead to, the, to freedom for the political prisoners uh, in Iran. And um, we already have some sense of this because prisoners that uh, we hear from prisoners and their relatives and so on that the uh, that the prison officials, the interrogators and so on are complaining because of all the publicity that's being generated by our campaign and other campaigns like from Amnesty International or Penn International um, and so on. Uh, and the centerpiece of what we're doing on this is an emergency appeal. The lives of Iran, Iran's political prisoners hang in the balance. We must act now. And this was published as a full-page ad in the New York Review of Books, which reaches has a readership of millions online, tens of thousands in the print version. And some of the signers include people very well known to the KPFA audience, Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, Gloria Steinem, Dan Ellsberg, Judith Butler, Raymond Lotta of Revolution Books, Ariel Dorfman. And uh, we are hoping, and Shireen Abadi, the uh, Nobel laureate of 2003, the peace laureate, just uh, very well known in Iran, and she's just signed on to this appeal. 
So that, too, you can find at our website, freeirunspoliticalprisoners.org. And Ariel Dorfman has been quite active in, in supporting yeah, let me this. Let me interrupt you there and, and ask you, um, I, I know that uh, I, I am, you know, I love poetry, and uh, Ariel Dorfman is an incredible novelist, playwright, poet, uh, and exile out of uh, Chile uh, in relation to Pinochet. Um, he has made a very strong statement. Do you have that in front of you? Could you read that? Cause I do, Dennis. I do. It's profound. And I'll, it is profound. Uh, you know, he, he begins about good-hearted people being bombarded with many requests. How do you decide? And then he says, if I have signed on to the emergency campaign to free Iran's political prisoners, it's because I know that this initiative will effectively call attention to the situation of men and women in that country who, if enough pressure is brought to bear on its leaders, could tomorrow be liberated from terrible conditions and extraordinary injustice. And even if those leaders do not listen, I'm convinced from personal experience that the prisoners themselves are given strength to survive and persevere. They're listening. They know others far away care about what happens to them, and we should not let them down. And we're determined and not to let them down. It's amazing. And again, it is, um, it's a hard road, Larry, because... For so many reasons, you know, we know how bad the corporate media is, um, but, you know, the way in which they deal with Iran, that there's the trained patriotic dogs that, are, you know, really, the, uh, forgive me, but uh, when it comes to foreign policy issues, key foreign policy issues, life and death issues, issues that are going to determine the future of the world, you know, the networks are out of town. They're in Washington, D.C., uh, and they're either... You know, they're trying to say if they can outdo each other in terms of who can get more Trump on or anti-Trump on. Uh, but a lot of crucial stories have gone by the wayside and Iran is right at the center. And it's, you know, it's about it's all about the limiting of the uh, of nuclear weapons and the expansive this is at the heart of the matter in terms of key issues of war and peace will the globe survive right this is this is this is a, a, this is the ticking time bomb this is at the center and that's where the united states is trying to exercise maximum control well, that's that's uh, that's right, Dennis, and and this is a very perilous moment in that on that front. There's there are nuclear negotiations going on now. They seem not to be going well, and you know there was there's been a lot of analysis that, that of the danger if those negotiations um, break down, Israel or the and or the U.S could attack Iran. And that's another reason that we're doing this program to sound the alarm about it. It was interesting in terms of what you're saying, Dennis. We did an article I would recommend for people at revcom.us on this. And 
you know, we make clear that these are two reactionary forces confronting each other, but who's done the greatest harm? We have a whole list from the 1953 coup d'etat in Iran through the sanctions in Iraq that murdered 500,000 children to the war in Afghanistan that killed over 200,000 people to the invasion of Iraq that took over a million lives and on and on. It's by far the United States. And that's the thing that is hidden in the U.S. media. It's all this talk about the U.S. being a force for good in the world. And I think in this, it's very, you know, and as I said, our demands, the, our campaign states very clearly, we are coming from the interests of, the, of humanity, not from the machinations and the maneuvers of any of the governments involved in this. And so free political prisoners, we demanded the Islamic Republic, no threats or war moves against Iran, lift U.S. sanctions. And I just want to say, for me, I've drawn a lot from the analysis by the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian, who made the point uh, a couple, but really over a decade ago, that if you look at this broader clash between Islamic fundamentalism and imperialism, countries like Iran on one side and the or Afghanistan on one side and the U.S. on the other, that they, that they actually reinforce each other even as they clash, and if you side with either one, you strengthen both. And, of course, this is all in the context of the U.S. being the greater danger. And what's needed is bringing forward another wave that's liberating, that's not imperialism, that not religious fundamentalism. And that's one reason the struggle in Iran is so important, because it holds that potential. And we could spend the rest of the evening talking about how the actions of imperialism have fueled Islamic fundamentalism and the crimes of the Islamic fundamentalists have fueled support for imperialism and back and forth, back and forth. We need another way. And the people and the courageous protesters of Iran are really showing the potential for that. You know, I can't, uh, Larry, I think part of my political career started at a protest. uh, And I'm sure you could nailed down the probably the exact day it was uh, a major protest against the Shah of Iran being given uh, either asylum or medical care in the United States yeah. I still remember the 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 chant ship back to Shah or variations <laughs> on, on a theme Shaw, exactly no i remember being at the uc berkeley campus and we had a because it, it's all they were doing the media was doing what you described just whipping up all this american chauvinism and america first america force for good in the world blah 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 and we went out and had staged a big, massive protest and debate at the UC Berkeley campus. And this is some. This is another reason for this program. The people in this country have to face up, and you do this on your show. You know, this is one of the reasons I, I really uh, appreciate talking with you over the years. Is you really show people what the U.S. does around the world, and people really need to know this and the horrific impact. It has, including in, in, in countries like Iran. And Thank stand you. up well, against listen. it and 
care about it and care about it and care about what's happening to the Iranian people or the Afghan people or others, Haitian people, as you're talking about tonight. Thank you. Now, uh, we have, I think it's Syed from San Jose. Join us, please. I hope I didn't uh, mispronounce your name, but correct me if I did. And join us, uh, Larry Everest, on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Thanks, Denise. Thank you. Uh, my question is, Larry, what do you think about the nature of Iranian regime? Because in past, I heard some folks, some of the friends in KPFA, uh, still considering Iranian regime as anti-imperialist. But the nature of 42 years of that regime is uh, show what kind of regime is that, not anti-imperialist. I'd like to uh, hear your point of view. And if Dennis can get in, I appreciate too. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, th- appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, Saeed. And I, and I know that Saeed is somebody that's been fighting for a long time for the for the prisoners and the people of Iran. But this is, um, I think, this is a this is a very important uh, question. It is not an anti-imperialist force. It's the the Islamic Republic has contradictions with imperialism, but it's. Western imperialism, it's basically trying to carve out a different relationship. It has different necessity in terms of maintaining this Islamic uh, fundamentalist regime, but it's talking about renegotiating a deal with imperialism. It isn't isn't an anti-imperialist regime. And the Iranian regime is is a regime that's, you know, you're supporting people like the butcher Assad in Syria. I mean, 500,000 people dead in the civil war, which, yes, and the blood is on the hands of Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the United States, and, and, and Europe, and so on. But just because we've got to break out of this idea that we need to pick between which evil is the greater or the lesser. And, um, you know, Iran has deals with China, with Russia. It, it, it has been seeking greater ties with U.S. imperialism, but of course, the, this was uh, torpedoed by Trump uh, with the breaking of, of the Iran nuclear deal. And the other point I want to make: so this this has nothing to do with anti-imperialism, and and a good illustration of that was the U.S. in 1979 when the U.S. realized the Shah was finished. And that Khomeini was going to come to power, the U.S. thought it could work with Khomeini against the revolutionaries, against the communists, against the left, and uh, to prevent the Iranian revolution from being carried further. Now, it didn't work out, but that should tell you something right there about how the U.S. government understood uh this regime. So I think it's a very good question. Uh, and again, two outmoded reactionary forces reinforcing each other, even as they as they clash. And we need okay, a that's the voice. Way, another way. 
That's the voice of Larry Everest. Uh, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We've actually opened the phones uh, regarding the situation in Iran. Uh, we're taking calls at 1-800-925-9008, uh, 1-800, no, not that, that's not it. Uh, sorry, 1-800-958-9008, one 9008 uh, and uh, we'd love you to join us. Uh, Larry, you alluded to this earlier, but I, I, I think the, um, what about the, the, the situation regarding Israel? And Iran, what what is the role that Israel plays in all of this? In uh, the uh, ability of the United States to actually cut a deal with Iran that would make sense? Where, where uh, give us a, just remind people the role Israel plays here. Well, overall, uh, and I know you cover this on the show a lot, Dennis. Overall. Israel was formed as a pro-imperialist settler colonial state. The imperialist powers dating back a hundred years ago understood Israel as an outpost of the West in a region, the Middle East, that was growing more and more crucial because it's at the geographic and economic crossroads of the world and of course it has tremendous oil resources and since particularly after world war ii israel has played a role as a gendarme for the united states and part of what's made this and and so that has included repeatedly threatening iran uh with war and in recent years um assassinating Iranian scientists, assassinating Iranian officials. These are war crimes. Uh, I don't, agree, you know, I'm not in support of this regime, but killing officials of this regime is a war crime, and that's what Israel has done, sometimes with U.S. support. But there are also tensions between the U.S. and Israel because you know, the U.S. has been defeated in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's trying to regroup, and its concern is not that a war by Israel would hurt the Iranian people. Its concern is that it would hurt the U.S. position in the region and make it more difficult to focus on confronting China and and Russia. So there are certain tensions, but overall, uh, the Israelis and I read one estimate by a Demo- and here's a Democratic congressman who who made the point that if not for Israel, the U.S. would have to station another 120,000 troops in the Middle East. So there is very overall very close collaboration, and 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 this this represents a real. Um, a real threat to the to the Iranian people, as of, of course, to the Palestinian people. I should, uh, you and I were talking about it earlier. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal today that um, if the deal breaks down, Biden's facing his Iran moment, and uh, this this uh, op-ed is arguing that he needs to be ready to do a military strike on Iran. Uh, so this is a real serious danger. And uh, which we also want to, uh, which our appeal is also sounding the alarm about. 
you know, you 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 hear a lot about a non-nuclear Middle East, uh, and it's always sort of odd and ironic in the uh, darkest extreme that Israel is going to attack Iran to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. I'm going to say this again. And yet, here we have one of the global nuclear renegades, and the United States is sort of the same thing, uh, but everybody knows, and thanks to the United States, Israel has a substantial storage of uh, weapons. We will never know how much because they're nuclear renegades. There, there are no expe- um, inspections of Israel's nuclear weapons. As far as the United States is officially concerned, isn't it true, Larry? There are no nuclear weapons in Israel, or nobody knows nothing about it well they i think some of them have acknowledged that israel's a nuclear power but they're in support of that you know their concern is maintaining a strength they're responsible for that exactly <laughs> and they're they're yeah. their position exactly and their position and let's not forget the u.s is the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons that has repeatedly repeatedly threatened um the use of nuclear weapons one of Daniel Ellsberg has written a whole book that involves a documentation of, about the very, he calls threatening the use of nuclear weapons is a use of nuclear weapons. And this is what the United States and Israel have been doing in the Middle East. Again, not to prevent the loss of human life, but, um, you know, uh, but to uh, maintain the stranglehold. And in their view, even Iran um, having the knowledge to uh, make a nuclear weapon would be intolerable because it would shift the military calculus. But I also I also want to say it's, you know, back to this question about is Iran... Well, well, Larry, can I, can I inter- interrupt yeah. for a second? Because I want to... Let's yeah, get yeah, a, yeah. another yeah. call on. Uh, Farib sure. uh, in San Jose, join us. Farib. Yeah, that's Farib from San Jose. Farib, sorry. Yeah, thank, thanks for the uh, program. But my question is the left in Iran, by supporting Khomeini during the revolution, has unfortunately lost its position as an alternative. Do you think it can be revived? I I I I I know I know what you're saying. I think there was misunderstanding uh, in Iran. Uh, during that period, uh, including when I was there. This is one reason um, I think, this is another reason I think the formulation or the analysis that I referred to earlier by Bob Avakian is so important. And I think that um, the Iranian, their Iranian revolutionaries and, and many other people in Iran uh, understand that this is not an anti-imperialist regime. You can't call it anti-imperialist when they're actually locking up the most anti-imperialist Iranians they are, who are the revolutionary socialists and communists and a lot of the, the masses of people who are rising up against this regime and who, who aren't uh, wedded, you know, or, or demanding the U.S. come in and uh, 
uh, do regime change. And uh, I know there are revolutionary communist forces in Iran that are seeking a total change. Now, this isn't part of our campaign of the uh, emergency campaign, uh, taking a position on all the different, uh, uh, you know, particular um, political trends in Iran. But we know such forces do exist, which have broken with the ideas that you're talking about, that Khomeini was somehow not an Islamic theocrat, but a petty bourgeois, uh, anti-imperialist, a reformer, what have you. This was uh, a, a big current uh, in Iran. So we, we, we're not taking a position on this. You're, you're asking me a sort of a different question as the emergency campaign. We're for freeing all the different political prisoners of whatever, uh, whatever particular persuasion. But I think that, I think that this is a situation, uh, where there is great potential. Uh, as illustrated in the uprisings that have been taken taking place. And uh, again, I want to just give out our website where there's a lot more information on free Iran's political prisoners now.org, free Iran's political prisoners now.org, including uh, signing up for the um, uh, Sunday's program. Uh, also, the website that I uh, myself write for, Revcom.s, where there's all kinds of coverage of the Middle East and and the role, particularly of uh, the terrible predatory role that America is playing in this world and why it's a for, right. not a force for good. So, All right. Listen, Larry, before I let you go... Um, this is not an ambush, but uh, before I let you go... Don't let me go, um, Dennis. Don't let me uh, go. <laughs> I'll never let you go. I'll always hold you close, Larry. Uh, but I, I, I have to... Let me just see how much time... We just have a couple of minutes. Um, but I, I have to give you one shot at the current state of affairs one year after... The nearly totally successful right-wing insurrection, Confederate flags and all. Um, somebody who's always sort of believed in the in your heart of heart in a revolution, and that's what's needed. And but I don't think you mean this kind of counter revolutionary, but it does seem like um, these folks have connections that, that the folks you work with never had. When, Because uh, if you guys ever tried to start hammering on Congress, uh, they would have been dragging you out body by body happily. What do you think about all this? You, you, how come you think they, they let all these criminals get away, the cop killers and all? Well, I this is uh, this is a big question. And I know I'm giving you, but I want to no, show. You, I have worry, to ask. I'm you. Glad you asked me. No, listen, I'm going to give you two minutes worth here. All this right. This is a really big. This is a huge question. But let's start out with two basic things. Trump and this January 6th was an attempt at a fascist coup, and this fascist coup did not come from Russia. It came from the capitalist imperialist system, the white supremacist system, the misogynist system, 
in the United States. And I think the best thing to get into this whole issue and what we should do is a new work by Bob Avakian called Something Terrible or Something Truly Emancipating, Profound Crisis, Deepening Divisions, The Looming Possibility of Civil War, and The Revolution That's Urgently Needed. And as I, as I was telling you, you know, this is, a, this is the first time since I've been a revolutionary that we, uh, Avakian, actually has made the analysis that this is actually a period where revolution can become possible. And he, go to revcom.s, listen or read his uh, statement, and he... He lays it out, but it's very. And I I have to, you know, I have to say here now that this is, this generally speaking, as you know, Larry, this is an old dialogue we have, is a um, politician free, it's a political party free zone. Um, But uh, the perspective has been, but the perspective has been represented. It it has been represented. I appreciate it. Yeah. But, but, you know, I don't do the party side, but the information is crucial, and uh, I'm glad you shared that. You are one of the most knowledgeable journalists uh, writing from the United States as an American about uh, and uh, about. The every aspect of the U.S. relationship with Iran, which is, in terms of global affairs, is one of the most important issues of our time. And you've given, you've really given us a lot of information tonight, Larry, and we appreciate it. So thank hey, I, you. I, I thank uh, you so much, Dennis. Really great to be with you. And uh, I think we've all got to be really thinking hard and studying everything that can help us understand. Well, uh, we thank you, and uh, we wish you well on uh, the event over the weekend. Uh, What's the uh, 30-second promo for the event? It's Sunday at 1 p.m. It's on Zoom or on YouTube, and you can get all the information and sign up for it by going to Free Iran's Political Prisoners Now dot O-R-G. FreeIransPoliticalPrisonersNow.org, and you'll see right on the home page. There's a link to go to the to get on the YouTube channel. There's a link to get to sign up on Eventbrite and get the notifications for Zoom and so on and so forth. So that's uh, that's right. the way to go. The website. Thank you, Larry. We really appreciate all the good information. Uh, Come back again. And I have to tell everybody, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This broadcast comes to you every weekday from 5 to 6 Pacific time or at kpfa.org. You can check us out anytime. Uh, We are delighted to broadcast from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a two-minute music break, and when we come back, we're going to replay for you a powerful segment from last night's show on the brutal treatment of uh, immigrants, migrants, uh, people who have been taken into custody uh, and are now being processed processed through a privatized uh, criminal prison system. It's brutal. 
uh, and um, we're going to tell you all about what's going on in Louisiana, so stay with us. On Pacifica Radio, my name is Dennis Bernstein. That which you were just listening to was Air Modular Mix, beautiful piece, and uh, we're happy to have it. And we thank our technical producer, music master, Big Mike Biggs, for playing that for us. You are again listening to Flashpoints. We're going to turn our attention to a very horrible situation in terms of uh, private prisons and refugees and it's a horror situation joining us to talk about this uh this is happening in louisiana is gloria lariva gloria welcome back to flashpoints um this is a a very terrible situation it has to do with both uh you know puts the spotlight on the vicious nature of private prisons and the failing u.s policy that's quite violent against immigrants who have virtually no chance, no chance of asylum if they're in a private prison because it's about squeezing the system and making money on the bodies of people who have suffered then suffered again and again and again. It's a profound tragedy now at the foot of the Biden administration. Gloria would you would you set the scene in Louisiana at these prisons? Lay it out for us. Just paint us a picture. Yes, uh, thank you for having this segment um, about the prisons, Dennis. Um, a few weeks ago, we received a call from a woman who is an immigrant activist. She is actually an immigrant, and her husband was in one of those detentions in Arizona. So she's become quite the advocate for other women in jail because of their seeking asylum or were living in the United States as undocumented. And she called us because she heard of a hunger strike of women in Louisiana in the town of Monroe, which is north Louisiana. And it's a jail called Richwood. It's actually in a little town called Richwood. It's a black town. And the women began a hunger strike because the food was so atrocious and the conditions were so bad. They were on it for a matter of days, but then it became pretty unbearable. One of the things that happened to them, according to a young Honduran woman who called me, was that one day the food they were given had worms in it. And that's one of the reasons they said we're not eating anymore. 
And another time, there was glass in the food that actually cut a Peruvian woman's hand when she tried to pick it out. So the hunger strike was the catalyst for myself and a number of other activists going to Louisiana to find out more about this. And it turns out that Louisiana has become the second largest state in terms of numbers of undocumented in detention and these ICE detention in particular prisons that are for profit. And in Louisiana, Governor Edwards in 2012 passed a prison reform in which many state prisoners were released because of overcrowding, because of excessive sentencing. And the population went down from 40,000 state prisoners to 27,000. So to fill that void, GEO, G-E-O, which is a for-profit prison corporation, and LaSalle, another one which is actually based in Louisiana. But the two are large, and GEO is the biggest in the world. Well, they raised their hand and told ICE, we'll fill those prisons for you. So that's why Louisiana became the site of so many being sent there now. And they basically, as vultures, filled the void that was created by the reduction. So what happens in Louisiana is that they have the judges there who decide whether you get asylum or not uh, have taken a very hard line. Nationally, the rate of asylum being granted by judges is 42%. But in Louisiana, it's as low as 10 to 16%. And one judge in Louisiana never granted asylum to any of the cases before them. None. And these are these are case studies in asylum uh, that are baking uh, to be granted. It's it's a troubling thing. We're speaking with Gloria Lariva, who work, also works with the Answer Coalition, uh, and but she's just back from Louisiana in the South, where she's been looking at this hunger strike. Let, let's uh, spend a little more time keeping a human face on this. Uh, I am hearing uh, that. Haitians are facing a particularly brutal situation. There were some cases in which it was described to me that the 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 language, the accepted languages were Spanish and English, and so Creole, when the Haitians were speaking Creole, they were beaten. Uh, we're hearing stories of all kinds of brutality. Well, what do you know? Have you heard anything about this? Any stories uh, that uh, you heard remind you of this kind of brutality? Well, you can imagine, Dennis, the attitude that the jailers and the government has toward Haitians in particular when you see what happened at the border with uh, at the border with the United States and Mexico when they were being treated like slaves and the and slave drivers on those horses. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the attitude toward them. And we, one woman called me. She's Honduran. She had just gotten out of the jail and is being given temporary release, but she has to still fight for asylum. And she was crying when she told me that very recently in her cell at 2.30 in the morning, uh, guards came in to the cell where the women were and told a young Haitian woman, you're going to be deported, so get ready in 10 minutes, get your things. And they left, and she started crying and just distraught because 
she said, I will not go back to Haiti. I'll kill myself before I go back to Haiti because of the horror of what Haitian people are suffering there thanks to U.S. policy. And uh, they came back a few minutes later, 10 men, and they brutally forced her out of the cell and deported her to Haiti. Where, and on the other hand, the political nature of U.S. immigration, which is used as a weapon and is used as enticement. And that when I was in Louisiana, I was at the jail to see someone coming out. And two men, one from Honduras, one from Nicaragua over there, they didn't have any rides to the airport, which is pretty far away. And nobody was going to take them. They have no money. So I drove them to the airport. And when I was there, there were about 12 people who were ready to take flights, you know, people who had been released from the jail. And there were three men, Nicaraguan, Venezuelan, and Cuban. And I went up to them. I said, oh, we know where you're from. They go Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. And I said, how long have you been in jail? Because many of them have been there for months, many months. And they said, the Venezuelan guy said, oh, no, we're just here for a few days. We get released right away because we come from dictatorships. And I, I said, of course, no, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua are not dictatorships. They're socialists. But the point of that was that he recognized and they recognized that if you come from Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, you get special treatment because they're being used as a, as a, as a weapon. That policy has been used against those countries and you get special treatment. But if you're from Haiti, Mexico, um, Honduras, Ecuador, uh, there are women from China in there, women from Brazil, three women who've been there for seven months and just desperate to get out. A mother wrote us from Brazil saying, please, please help my daughter. One woman, uh, one of the women who was deported sadly two days ago, her name is Irma Diaz, and she said, use my name, tell people who I am. She's from Mexico, and she was working for 15 years in Tucson, Arizona, with three daughters. One was um, 12 years old at the time. The other was 15, and another was 21. And she was rounded up, one of the first people arrested by Trump when he became president. And she was deported. She wanted to come back to her daughters, so she crossed the border a few months ago, and she ended up in this Richwood jail that we visited, that we were outside of. And, um, you know, she was telling us about the cruelty against people. One young woman, she said she has sores all over her body that have burst out. She looks so ill. And then a few days later, they carried her out in a sheet. They dragged her out in a sheet because she was, like, almost dying. But they had to. They waited for so long to get her medical care. Uh, this woman Irma was type one diabetes. She wasn't getting insulin, and on and on and on. So, All they get is ibuprofen. And we we have to say when when we're thinking about the privatization of the prison system, that the very nature of privatization goes against. The, even the sort of the vision of the uh, correctional <laughs> uh, system, the the idea when it's a private prison and it's straight up, we're going to keep you in here 
Forget good behavior. Forget whatever. We're going to keep you in here as long as we possibly can because every bed, is every head filled with a bed is money in our pockets. And it is amazing that these these private prisons are being paid, what is it, three times, they're charging three times what it cost uh, to deal with this uh, prison population at the uh, public level, right? Exactly, they're, they're, yes, they're, three times. Three times. And then, you know, Richmond is 91% black. It's a small town next to Monroe. This is, these are rural areas. These jails are put in rural areas where there's less chance of protest or people being aware. But I met the mayor of Richwood. He was facing a recall the day I met him. He defeated the recall. But anyway, I was talking with him because he'd been quoted a few days before in the press where he said, we get a dollar fifty a day from this jail arrangement that they never had before, a dollar fifty a day per in per detainee per day, which means $150,000 a year. And he said, you know, this is, we were facing a deficit and this really helps us. And I said, well, you know, sir, I'm coming because we're going to have a protest tomorrow. And, um, because he said, you know, I was able to get five more police on our budget because of the of the money. And I told him what was going on. And he says, well, no, I feel really bad for these women. He says, but what can you do? You know, the jail's here. And that that's, it shows you the situation of rural poor communities where often it's the only employment or one of the main employers. And this is a game. This is a racket from the government to these prison companies. But by the way, I gotta tell you something. Alameda County here in the Bay Area about a year or two ago was ordered to pay minimum wage to the county jail inmates who were waiting trial because they were being treated under slave conditions that's allowed in the 13th Amendment of the Constitution if you're convicted. Sadly, that's in the amendment but if you're not convicted because you're waiting trial then you're supposed to get minimum wage and so those workers in jail got a substantial payback and it just happened last november of last year in washington state where geo the same company that's running the prison in louisiana was paying a dollar a day a dollar a day and they were forced to pay uh 40 million dollars to the inmates and to the state for as fines, but also to the in, to the detainees, ICE detainees, for having worked for a dollar a day. And when I was asking Irma in Louisiana, I said, are you guys working? She goes, yes. And she goes, we're paid a dollar a day. So that's a struggle that we're going to continue because GEO's got to pay a price and we got to shut these things down. That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.